Let's continue to be in an attitude of prayer as we commit this time into the Lord's hands. And let's ask God to continue teaching us. We have seen that God has been teaching us over the past months, building us up into the kind of people He wants us to be. Let's pray that God will continue to do that. And as He does so, we will be moldable in His hands. Father God, we commit ourselves into your hands, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you will speak to our inner being. And as you speak and as you teach, we will learn from you, Lord. We will learn the truth that you have hidden in the word, in your word. And we will activate those truths in our lives, Lord. We commit ourselves into your hands. We commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you like history? Hmm, we have quite a few history buffs here, which is good. But there are a lot of people who don't like history. And I saw that many hands did not come up. However, I am going to start today with a story from the pages of history. How many of you have heard of a woman called Corrie Ten Boom? Some, few, okay. She was a Dutch lady who was incarcerated in the Nazi concentration camps in 1944. She was incarcerated because she and her family, that's her sister, her parents, her brother, younger brother, were all providing shelter to Jews who were being pursued by the German Nazis. On her incarceration, she was tortured, she was beaten, she was deprived of food and drink. She saw her friends give up and die. She saw her father die. And then she saw her sister die. But early on, Corrie Ten Boom had decided on one thing. And that was, she decided that she was going to live. She was not going to die. Whatever be the provocation. She would not give up. She would not give in to the beatings and the torture. She would not be depressed when she saw tragedy around her. She refused to compromise. And so she chose to live. She would not curse God, nor would she curse her torturers. She chose to thank God for every dawn that she saw, however painful it was. Finally, the Nazis gave up on her and released her. And when she was released, she became a motivational speaker both in Europe, subsequently went to the US and uh, was a motivational speaker there till she died at the age of 91. Her message was very simple. She said, keep trusting in God, whatever be the circumstances and situations around you. Be faithful, for God knows what he is doing, even if you do not understand what is happening. Very simple message, yet powerful, which touched the lives of people. 
which simply kept saying that keep trusting God. Situations around you may not be to your likings. Things may not be going according to the way you have planned, planned certain, certain things. But God knows. God knows best what's for you. Now let me give you another lesson from history. But this is taken from the Bible. In 606 BC, the Babylonians began their conquest of Jerusalem, deporting many of the people and finally destroying the city and the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC. In 538 BC, that is approximately 70 years after the Jews had been taken into custody or captivity by the Babylonians, King Cyrus, a non-Jewish pagan king, issued a proclamation allowing the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their temple. 42,360 Jews returned. And this is recorded in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. 42,360 Jews. In addition, they had... And the same verse records this. They had 7,337 servants and 200 singers. Believe me, history is not always vague. It could be precise. Sometimes very precise. These are figures taken from many, many centuries back. But the figures are recorded. And the events that took place as recorded in the Bible have also been recorded in many books of history recorded at that time. And therefore there is good correlation between the history of the Jewish movement as recorded in the Bible and recorded in world history literature. You see, and so when they returned to Jerusalem, the 42,360 Jews, when they returned to Jerusalem on the edict of King Cyrus, they started building the temple. But I'm stopping that lesson right here. Do you want to know the complete story? You see, there are some of us here who are teachers, and I'm a teacher. Uh, one of the instructions we are given when we teach is never tell the complete story. Take it to a point where you have captured the imagination of the people, of the class. Leave it there and let the students look for the answers. So I'm stopping this history lesson right here. But if you want to know the complete story, I recommend that you read the complete story chronologically. And I'll tell you what the chronological order is. Start with the book of Daniel, where you will read of how the Jews were forcibly taken away from their homeland to a pagan land. Then read chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra, 
where the 42,360 Jews return to start building their temple. Then jump to the book of Haggai, where you will still read of the construction of the temple. Then move on to the book of Zechariah and the remaining chapters of Ezra, where you will read of the spiritual growth of the Jews. Conclude your reading from the book of Nehemiah, which records the building of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. In the English Bible as we have it now, it is not arranged chronologically. The books are interspersed. The Hebrew Bible actually has it in a chronological sequence. And this is the chronological sequence. So if you are able to read all these books, and you get the full story, the full history of how the second temple of Jerusalem was built along with the walls of the city, you will soon realize that there are three important facts that come out of that story. Number one, building the temple was not an easy task. Just to annotate that into our current context, when this building was built, there was great expectations. And everybody had ideas of how it should be built. What should be the height, what should be the width, what should be the depth, where should the cables be put, and everybody, with knowledge or without knowledge, including me. And I have absolutely not, no knowledge of any of these things. And then when it was completed and we had the echo effect in this hall, we all had things to say as to why this was not the appropriately built building. But then as days have gone by, things have got better. There have been improvements made in this place. There have been add-ons that have been put into this place. And we are much better today than we were some time back, almost two years back when this church was first commissioned, or when this building was first commissioned. So the simple fact of the matter is, building the temple was not an easy task. There were a lot of dimensions that they had to follow. There were a lot of instructions which were given by God that they had to follow. And they were always trying to compare it with the original temple which Solomon built. And were always thinking that this building, this new temple, is falling short of what that old temple was like. You see, I'm sure many young people here will recognize the fact that as, par as parents, when we talk, we tell the young children, you should have been in my days. We would have done things better. But the fact of the matter is, we didn't do things better even then. Okay, but our children don't know that, do they? Okay, so we tell them that. And so the people, when they were building the second temple, they kept saying, oh, the glory of the first temple. And it goes on. We can read more about that in the book of Haggai. But please do remember one fact. That the second temple might not have reached the physical stature of the first temple built by Solomon. But it was in this second temple, Jesus Christ was dedicated. It was in this second temple, Jesus Christ 
opened the scrolls and read from it. So the second temple is just as important as the first temple. But it was not an easy task. That's the first thing you will realize as you read the history of the building of this temple. The second thing you will realize is this. When the work of God began, the devil did all he could to destroy it. Every possible thing that the devil could do, he attempted in order that this temple would not come up. The devil also has a fairly distant vision. He does not see all things the way God sees them. But the devil is able to see things a bit more than you and me into the future. Of course, if he could see a little more, he wouldn't have crucified Jesus Christ. Luckily, he couldn't see that far. Okay, but he knew that the temple would be a place where people would congregate. It would be a place where the word of God would be read. It would be a place where people would come closer to God because God would reside in that temple. And the devil did everything he could to prevent the temple from coming up. And the third thing we will see as we read all of these books and the complete history of the Jewish exodus and the return is through it all, through it all, God remained faithful. And God saw them through. The temple was constructed because that was God's plan. And God's plan cannot be defeated. God's plans can never be defeated. The devil has been trying that from days immemorial. He hasn't succeeded. He isn't going to succeed. So through it all, that's the third message we will get across when we read this whole story. Through it all, God remained faithful and saw them through. However, our focus today is not on these historical facts or on all of these processes, but we will focus on one area of importance within this big narrative. So shall we turn to the book of Ezra? And if you've got your Bibles, please do take out your Bibles, whichever version it is, it doesn't matter. We open to the book of Ezra. It comes in the Old Testament. And let's open to chapter 4. And that's what we are going to read. We are going to read the whole chapter. It will take me some time to just read this chapter. And then we will see what are our take-home lessons from this chapter. Chapter 4 of Ezra. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. 
Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mitradat, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of, of their companions, representatives of the Dinaites, the Aphershatites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, the Dehavites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. This is the copy of the letter that they sent him to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute or custom and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of the companions to dwell in Samaria and to the reminder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command and a search has been made and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river. The tax, the tribute, the custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was continued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
That's a long chapter, but there are lessons for us in that. So what are our take-home lessons from this chapter? As soon as God starts to bless, and as soon as you become seriously involved in building God's kingdom, in building God's temple, the devil starts to battle. Every time you choose to obey God, Satan attempts to derail you. Satan is the destroyer. And he gets angry, frustrated, and more cunning when you do what God wants you to do. Before we recognize the weapons that Satan uses, let us try to correlate one thing. How do we relate this passage of scripture in Ezra 4 to our present scenario? And to simplify that job, I'm just picking on a couple of verses which we will read straight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? This is not from the Old Testament. This is from the New Testament. This is about you and me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22. Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All these verses, and there are more, clearly tell us that today we are the temple of God. You and I are the temple of God. During Ezra's time, the temple had to be a physical structure in which God would meet with his people through the priests. But after the death, crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
The temple of God is your body and mine. God in his grace and mercy has chosen to reside in us. I hope you get that point, that God is not residing in a building built with bricks or stone, however beautiful that is, however costly it is. But God has said that he chooses to reside in you and in me. While in that temple, to meet the people, or for the people to meet God, there had to be the priests. But when God is in you, you are in direct conversation with God. God meets you. How beautiful it was to sing, I am a friend of God. That's what we sang this morning. And if I have a friend amongst you here, I don't need to speak to you with a veil separating the two of us. I don't need somebody else to come and pass on my message to you and your message to me through a mediary, an intermediary. I can talk to you directly. That's what it means to be in direct contact. And we now know from the New Testament that God resides in this temple, that temple. He doesn't need anybody else to come in between you and me. You can go to God directly. You can talk to God directly. And you don't need to go to the temple to talk to him. You can talk to him anywhere and everywhere at any time of the day, 24 hours a day, if you can stay awake. Because God is there for you all the time. But then, just like in the days of Ezra and Haggai and Nehemiah, where the temple had to be built up brick by brick, your temple and mine has to be built up with the word of God, with with a constant effort at righteousness and holiness. That's all that's expected. Just because you and I state that we are the temple of God, does not mean that that temple is going to remain the same all the time. It needs to be constantly built up. Every building needs maintenance. Every building starts crumbling after some time. The cares of this world will make your temple crumble. Insidiously, small areas. So we need to constantly build that up. And how do we do that? The Bible tells us that we do that with the word of God. Righteous living. Holiness. If we can just practice this, that's the way we build up our temple. And that's the way God lives with us. But then, just like in the days of Ezra, Satan will use every weapon at his disposal to prevent your temple and my temple from being built up. Anything that he can do to keep chipping away. Many years back, 
I remember a statement which Pastor Busola made in this place, in that church. And if you wait a month, you will meet with Pastor Busola. He said, be a pillar, don't be a caterpillar. Caterpillars will go and gnaw away a little, little, little things and break foundations. Be a pillar, not a caterpillar. So that's what Satan does, like a caterpillar. Not like a battering ram. He doesn't come and knock down your temple like a battering ram, even though he can do it at times. But he keeps nibbling away at little, little areas, small areas of your life, small compromises here and there, small falling away from the standards which we were once used to when we got to know God. And then we start lowering those standards little by little, not really knowing that we are lowering those standards. But that's the way the devil works. And to do this, the devil has multiple weapons. He used them when the Jews were building the second temple. And very often he uses those same weapons. So now let's go back to Ezra chapter 4 and see what are the weapons that Satan used at that time during the construction of the second temple. And understand that these are very much still the weapons that he chooses to use to destroy your temple and mine. Number one, weapon number one, cooperation. Verses one and two. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, okay, it says, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, what did they do? They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ezarhedon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Cooperation. Help is what the people of the land offered. Unfortunately, cooperation often leads to compromise. And from verse 3, we see that Zerubbabel and Jeshua totally and completely rejected this cooperation. They said, no, we don't want it. Thank you very much. You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. For we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They were wise to the fact that they did not want to get the help of somebody who was not a Jew. How are you building your temple today? If you are a believer and you are building that temple, where is the help coming from? Are you taking help from those who are not true believers? Are you building up yourself with strictly biblical doctrines or are you allowing the doctrines of this world to influence you? Frankly, it may not even be the doctrines of this world that are influencing us. It may very well be doctrines from churches 
that have allowed the world to influence them. And those doctrines are now influencing us. I know I will be stepping on a few toes when I say the next few words. But I say what I have to say. Are you going to churches or sending your children to churches that do not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do not believe in speaking in tongues. What temple are you allowing your children to build? Are you going to churches that preach that only the gospel and the acts of the apostles are relevant in today's world? Are you involved in churches or church organizations that permit homosexual priests and bishops that have turned a blind eye to Romans chapter 1? If you want to know about what the Word of God says about homosexuals and, and the like, just turn to Romans chapter 1. It can't be made any clearer than that. Are you okay with churches that teach that divorce is acceptable in today's modern world? Ask yourself these questions. And many more. What is the type of temple you are building today? God's standard is high and does not accept watered-down doctrines, compromised teachings, or cooperation with the pagan world. Just turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. A verse that is so often quoted when we talk of young people getting married. And we say, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Take it away from that mar marriage scenario. Put it into day-to-day -day living. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The Bible tells us that we should not separate ourselves from unbelievers except to make sure that we maintain our holiness, our righteousness, our value systems with God. So why do we have to mingle with unbelievers? In order to influence them. That's your job. That's my job. God's not asking me to go and sit on one mountaintop and be by myself. He said, yes, I've got to influence the world. Okay, but I should not be influenced by them. However attractive it seems. Okay. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's there in the Bible. This is the verse we often read. Now put it into practice, into your life. Ask yourself that question. Is that what you are doing? See, God's standard is extremely high. But if your temple has to be built up the way God decrees the temple has to be built, you have got to maintain that high standard.
you can't build a temple to your standards and then say, God, come and reside in this temple. Don't insult God. Weapon number two that the devil uses, discouragement. Verse three, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua, let me get that right. Uh, verse four, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. When cooperation didn't work, the pagan people said, let's go and discourage them. You see, discouragement is, is meant to make you feel small and incompetent and incapable. You assume, you are made to assume that you cannot do what God wants you to do. God has said, go build your temple. And somebody else comes and tells, oh, you can't do that. You are a sinner. You are this. You are that. You are this. You are that. And then you start feeling, yeah, I really can't. You are believing a creation more than your creator. But God has simply said, go build your temple with holiness and righteousness. But the world comes to you with discouragement. Satan brings discouragement. See, when the people saw that the Jews rejected the ploy of cooperation, they started belittling them. They probably kept telling the Jews that they couldn't do it. The task was too big for them. They were not competent enough. Did they know what a beautiful structure King Solomon's temple was? Did they think they could even come close to that? See, this is what Satan does. Tries to put ideas of discouragement, ideas of failure into you. In cricket, I'm sure many of us play cricket, especially if you are watching Australian cricket, you know that there is often a word that is used, sledging. Okay. Sledging is when players start making comments that make the opposition players feel small, incompetent. Okay, it's a psychological game. We may think that cricket is just a physical game of a bat and a ball and you whack the ball around. It's more than that. It starts with a lot of psychology. Playing on the mind. And the devil has done this from the very beginning of time. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And you will see that the first thing that the devil did was played on the mind of Eve. He discourages people. So is he discouraging you today from building up your temple? When God is telling you, go build that temple. What's the devil telling you? And are you listening to the devil? Weapon number three. Intimidation. Verses four and five. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. Verse 5, they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's the third weapon that the devil employed. Intimidation. Scaremongering. They frustrated 
the Jews as much as they could. They hired people to work against them. They tried to employ fear as an intimidating tool. Many years back, maybe 20 years back, when I was uh, 20 years younger, obviously, okay, and I was not as intelligent as I am now, okay, though I thought, you see, at that age, you know, you generally think that you're the most intelligent person, uh, like many of you do think, okay. What happened was, I got into this credit card trap. And so I got a credit card from Citibank, which was a Visa card. And not knowing, well, not being intelligent enough to know how to use credit cards properly, I overspent on my Visa card, Citibank's Visa card. And then I found that I couldn't make it up every month. And I was getting fleeced by their high interest rates. See, wisdom dawns when you are in trouble. Okay. So then, Standard Chartered came along and offered me to take over my complete Citibank uh, credit loan at a slightly lower percentage. Citibank was offering me 2.95%. These guys offered me 2.75%. So I transferred my credit to, to, to uh, Standard Chartered, which was now offering me MasterCard. Okay, so I'm very proudly I had a Visa card in one pocket and a MasterCard in the other pocket. Okay? As if one uh, millstone is not around enough around your neck. Now I had two millstones around my neck. So now I started using MasterCard. Okay, but MasterCard was paying, I mean, I was paying up to MasterCard to clear up my loans. But Visa card was free, so I continued using Visa card. And I got myself into greater loan. And then comes the next guy, American Express. Okay. And they said they will take it over for 2%. What I didn't read was the 2% was only for three months. After that, it was 3.2% for American Express. And they would take over all the credit cards. So I said, great. I gave them to American Express. Now, American Express did not have an office in my city. They were up in Delhi. Or they had Bangalore, Madras, Delhi, etc. Now, six months down the line, I get a... I get a letter from them. See, that time we didn't have this email and all that. Lucky, huh? it was only snail mail. At that time I get a letter which states that if I don't clear my complete outstanding within 30 days, I will be given a court order. Okay, and I am up to 100,000 uh, rupees in loan with those guys. No, I... I'm not able to pay 1,000 rupees every month. And now I've got 100,000 rupees to pay. Where am I going to pay that amount? And what actually scared me was the fact that they are going to give me a court order, which means the police are going to come, and I probably will be in handcuffs. See, these were the thoughts which ran through my mind. So, we did everything possible, whatever gold my wife had... Uh, we took that and pawned everything, got the money, sent it across to Delhi. And of course, at that time, they say, no, the Bangalore office doesn't deal with this. The Madras office doesn't deal with this. It's the Delhi office which deals with this, which is too far away for me to anyway go and talk. So I sent off the money. I closed my American Express. And then when I started speaking to more knowledgeable people, they said, oh, no, 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 this is just a fear tactic. 
they are not going to go to any court. That thing is going to work. You can have kept that loan as long as you want it. They scare up people. But that was a good enough lesson for me to stay away from credit cards. Okay. Now, credit cards in my pocket are just to keep my wallet firm. You've got no other useful purpose. Okay. So please remember, the devil uses intimidation. He scares the people. He gets gangs of people around you, and they, they come and threaten you. You stop building, otherwise we'll break your leg. You know, something. Intimidation goes on. So fear is a powerful weapon in the devil's hands. Now what about in the temp- building of your own temple? Are you expected to do wrong things at work just to keep your job when God has told you, be honest, show integrity, be upright, be holy, and yet in your job, in order to keep that job which pays you a pittance, but you think it is the whole world, We are struggling to hold jobs which pay pittance. If we can just turn to God, He can give us more than pittance. But we are not willing to give up those jobs. And so we are not willing, we are not allowing God to open doors because we want this job. And to hold this job, you and I are prepared to temporarily put on the shelf Our honesty, our integrity, our holiness, our righteousness, everything. And we say, well, I have to do this so that I can feed my family. Excuses. Nothing but excuses. You cannot build the temple that God is asking you to build by using substandard building material. It will collapse. If the people during Ezra's time use substandard material, that temple would have collapsed. Remember, if you go back to, the, to, to, to your Old Testament and read, they were told where they should get the wood from. They were told where they should get the stone from. Because that was the highest quality wood. That was the best stone. They used the best stone masons to build that temple. So if you cannot build your temple with the highest quality of living, your temple is going to collapse. You cannot, I cannot, build my Christian life, my temple, where I want God to recite, by being partially honest, showing occasional flashes of integrity, or being even 99% honest. No, it doesn't work. God expects nothing less than 100% of your honesty, your integrity, your righteousness, your transparency, your clean living. Anything less than that, you've gone. To build a temple, the people had to use the best. To build your temple, be your best. Weapon number four. 
And this is a whole lot of weapons. From verses 6 to 24. I won't read it, but we'll just see a few points. Legislation. Weapon number four is legislation. So weapon number one was cooperation. Weapon number two is discouragement. Weapon number three is intimidation. Weapon number four is legislation. When nothing seemed to work for the people of the land against the people of God, they turned to official channels to hinder God's work. First, they wrote letters to higher authorities. And in it, they put down misleading information. If you read verses 12 to 14, you will see that they actually put down misleading information. Okay? They spoke about Jerusalem. They spoke about it being a rebellious and evil city. Okay? They spoke about the fact that tribute would not be paid, tax would not be paid, the treasure, the king's treasury will be diminished. They claimed that the city would refuse to pay taxes. The king would be dishonored. This is misinformation. Where did this come from? They had a very fertile imagination. Probably some good scribes who could put down these things. They planted an opinion in the mind of the king that he would lose power and dominion over the city. Verse 16 tells us that. That he will have no dominion beyond that. So that's enough to scare the king. Because kings work by dominion. I need to have power. I need to have my thumb over every guy. And if I've lost that dominion, what's the point? Okay. And so the king bowed down to this opinion. He went and searched the archives. That's what he tells us from verse uh, 17 onwards. But one thing he didn't do is he, the king or his archive bearers did not go through the complete archives. They went through part of it which agreed that yes, there were sedition, there were times of sedition in Jerusalem. Rebellion has started from Jerusalem. There have been times when people have revolted against kings from Jerusalem. That was enough for the king to say, okay, that's enough. Stop the building of the temple. But you see, in that same archives is a continuation letter written by King Cyrus, which says that the temple should be built. The best of material should be provided from the king's palace, from the king's treasury. The people, the Jews did not even have to pay for the temple. That was King Cyrus's decree. If you read chapters 5 and 6, that's what you will get. When the second part. When Darius came, he went back and again looked at the whole edict of King Cyrus and said, this is what King Cyrus says. You see, but Artaxerxes at that point was more worried about dominion. And when he heard that his dominion is going to diminish, he said, okay, that's enough. Jerusalem is a rebellious city. They've got enough history of rebellion from that city. Stop the building of the temple. Do some of these things happen to you when you try to be righteous and holy and spend time with the word of God? Do your accusers go to your CEOs or your managing directors and claim that your beliefs, your attitude is affecting the work you do in the office? 
Do you get orders that go beyond the call of duty? Orders that make you a slave in the office? Orders that are meant to give you no time for God? And because these are legislative orders, orders coming from higher-ups, the MDs and the CEOs, we have to take it. But do we really have to take it? Many years back, I was just as much a workaholic as many of you are. Officially, our working time, place where I work, is 7.30 to 2.30. That's the ministry decree. I need to be in my office before 7.30. Our classes start at 7.45. We actually finish classes by 2.15. I need to be out at 2.30. But I used to carry a lot of work home. I used to work at my office. I used to drink a lot of coffee with my friends. And then at 2.30, I don't leave at 2.30, I always stay back to just get stuff ready for the next day, so probably 3.34. And then I come home and I bring a briefcase full. I used to carry a briefcase. Uh, I've always had this uh, desire to carry a briefcase when I was in India. Okay. You never carry a briefcase in India unless you're a sales representative. Okay. So I never carried one. So when I came here, I carried a briefcase. Okay. That desire is done with. I no longer carry a briefcase. Anyway, so I used to carry this briefcase. But how do you carry an empty briefcase? Okay, next, it sounds funny, isn't it? So I used to load it with files and materials and everything, and then I bring it home. And then I start working on it. Working on it and working on it till late night. Till one day, somebody, actually to the brother from church, put some sense into me. He said, the ministry has decreed that you should work for eight hours. If you are working on the ministry job for more than the time that they allocate for you, it means you are incompetent. Oh, oh, I thought I was very competent. Now I have been told that I am incompetent. Because the ministry says that I can do my job in eight hours. And I realized that what was taking away my time was my coffee drinking and socializing with everybody else. So I said, okay, I'll drink my coffee. No problem with that. I love the coffee. But I won't socialize that much. So I sat in the office and I started doing most of the work in the office. And I found I didn't have to carry that work home. So I finished my work by 2.30. I just get stuff ready for the next day. Probably takes me an hour to do that. Okay, because very often I have first hour classes the next day. And so I'm back and then I'm free. So, ask yourself this question. Maybe you have to work 10 hours. Maybe you have to work 12 hours. Maybe you have to work 14 hours. That's in your contract. Honor it. Who's asking you to work 24 hours? Is that in your contract? That isn't. That isn't. Go and look up 
ILO rules, International Labour Organization rules. Nobody should work more than one-third of a day, officially. We don't like to hear this, do we? You're actually paid for one-third of the day, but you're working two-thirds of the day. You work 16 hours a day, but your salary is only for eight hours. Because those very same papers, if the ILO does screen them, will not show that you're working for 18 hours or 16 hours, unless you're being paid extremely high overtime. Just a simple ILO laws, International Labor, Org Labor Organization rules. Okay? Legislation, is that what's killing us? Is that what is preventing us from building a temple for God? So you'll see that these are some of the weapons, and there are many more, but from these chapters, this is all that we're going to be looking at. Cooperation. Discouragement, intimidation, legislation. So what are we to do then when the guns, all these guns of Satan are targeted at us? How do we respond? Before we see what our responses should be, let's just take a moment to see some of the usual responses that men make. Responses that you and I should not be making. Number one, blaming God. Number two, blaming the church and its leaders. Number three, giving up. Turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 2. Let's just read from verse 3 onwards. Job, chapter 2, verse 3 onwards. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you have incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of God and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot's herd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good things from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You see, Satan targeted Job because he wanted to prove to God that righteous men will curse God when they are in difficulty. And that's something that we see so often. When things are going well, it's always praise the Lord. And when things aren't going well, it's so often, where is God when I need Him? That's as good as a curse. Don't blame God. 
I don't have time for my family because I'm involved in the church. Don't blame the church. I just can't do this. God's not with me. I might as well just give up and be whatever it is. The Bible tells us that right from, through all the histories and the stories that we read, that the one thing you shouldn't do is don't give up on God. And when God tells you to do something, don't give up on it. Keep going. You will face, you will face obstacles. Step over them. Overcome them. Read Revelation. It's all about being an overcomer. It doesn't even say go around the problem. It says overcome the problem. Step over it. Stamp it down. That's what the Bible tells us. Satan's goal in spiritual warfare is not just to hurt us. His goal is to get us to curse God, to blame God and his people, to make us stop believing in the goodness and faithfulness of God. Basically, Satan wants us to give up on God. And if that's what we are doing, Satan has won the battle. So then, what should our response be? We know what we should not do. We should not blame God. We should not blame the church or its leaders. We should not give up. So what should we do? What should be our biblical or scriptural response? I'll quote these and then we stop. Number one, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Know your enemy and his schemes. Okay, number one, know your enemy and his schemes. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Don't be ignorant of the devices of Satan. Study the word of God. Find out what are the different techniques that he has used from time immemorial. Satan is not God. He does not have an unlimited supply of ideas. He's just a fallen angel. Read the word of God. You'll find out that there's a finite number of techniques that Satan uses. Okay. Know the devices that Satan uses. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. Know your enemy and his schemes. Number two. What should our response be? Submit to God and draw near to him. That's James 4, 7a and 8a. Therefore, submit to God. 8a, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Submit to God. Surrender yourself to God. Just say, God, I'm in your hands. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. We know the story of the prodigal son. He took a few steps forward. The father took hundred steps running to him. You take a few steps to God, God will take hundreds of steps running to you. The father in the prodigal son's story did not wait for the son to come up to him. When he saw him at a distance returning, he ran to him. That's what is written in my Bible. And that's the same with our God. When he sees us submitting to him and turning to him and returning to him and taking our steps back to him, 
God rushes forward to embrace you and me. Number three, our third biblical response, resist the enemy. James 4, 7b. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil cannot afford to waste time with somebody who is resisting him. He knows that that's a losing battle. So he goes around looking for others who he can capture. So all we need to do in order to make the devil run away from us is resist him. He says, do this, you say no. He tells you your history, tell him his future. He tells you where you have been, tell him where he's going. He doesn't want to hear that. He will run away from you. All we need to do is resist the enemy. And as I conclude, let me remind you that you and I are called to build and be the temple of God. And if you continue reading the book of Ezra, you will see that it's not only the completion of the temple, but after that, after chapter 6, from 7 onwards, comes the renewal of faith. Okay, that's when Ezra actually comes into the picture. Okay, Ezra personally comes into the picture for the renewal or the uplifting, uplifting of faith. Don't allow Satan to put spiritual setbacks as you build your life to be a temple of God. The Lord is our helper. Shall we pray? We have just been told that the devil has multiple weapons. Amongst them is cooperation, discouragement, intimidation, legislation. Don't give in to any of these. Don't blame God. Don't blame the church or its leaders. Don't give up. So what do we need to do? Each of us needs to decide that we need to know our enemy and his schemes, his devices. Each of us needs to submit to God, to draw near to him. And each of us must practice to resist the enemy at all times. Why you have to pray? You've heard about spiritual setback. If you are here to give your life to Jesus, you are here to start the journey. So if you are here, you know you are not born again. I'd like you to just raise your hand up while we are still seated. Everybody is still praying. You know you are not yet born again. You are here to start your spiritual journey. I want you to raise your hands and give your life to Jesus. I'll quickly pray with you now. If you are doing that, please do it quickly. I will come pray with you. Is anybody there? 
Okay, let's be on our feet. You have heard a word today that touches your eternity. Say, what shall it profit a man if he gain this whole world and lose his soul? You are a Christian today. What will you be tomorrow? Have you compromised your foundation? Say, if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the place that we read in First Corinthians three say, if any man defile the temple of God, First Corinthians three seventeen, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. It is that serious. You dis- you tamper with the temple of God. You mishandle the temple of God that you have. Say, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which you have. I'd like you to pray for grace to be holy. Grace to be holy as required of the temple of God. Please pray this prayer with the whole of your heart. Probably you are struggling with sin. Today you are up. Tomorrow you are down. Or you have compromised your faith in Christ. You have already had those things you should not have to hit. You have already gone in the way of the world like Demas. You love the cares of this world. Whilst to say, Lord, I receive grace to be holy. I receive grace to be righteous. Grace to do it right with you. I receive grace not to compromise my faith. Lord, I receive grace not to cooperate with the devil. I receive grace not to be intimidated, no matter what the devil does around me. I receive grace to put my focus on you, so that I will make it to the very end. I receive grace, Lord, never to draw back onto perdition. He said, we are not of them that draw back onto perdition, but of them that draw to the saving of souls. I receive grace to wait on you to the very end. I receive grace to endure whatsoever challenge, suffering that I have to go through. I shall not crash land my faith. I will not shipwreck my faith. I will not set back. I will not go back to the world. I will serve you and be faithful to the very end. In the name of Jesus. Ask the Lord to give you the grace to resist the devil. He said, resist it, submit yourself unto the Lord, resist the devil and he will flee. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Father, today we receive grace to keep ourselves holy. For that is what is required of your temple that we have, so that we will not be destroyed. Lord, pour out your grace upon our flesh to remain holy unto you in the name of Jesus. Anyone here that has gone astray, I pray for complete restoration back to the track of eternal life with you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, as we go this week, we go in your power, we go in your strength. We go in your favor in the name of Jesus. I declare everything you lay your hands on this week shall prosper in the name of Jesus.
The Lord will honor you this week in the name of Jesus. Your helpers, wherever they may be, the Lord will locate you on the path of your helpers this week in the name of Jesus. The favor of God you need for that next level he has proposed for you. The Lord will send that favor unto you this week in the name of Jesus. Every decision that will be made this week shall be in your favor. It shall be in your favor. It shall be in your favor. In the name of Jesus. The Lord your God will arise on your behalf and fight for you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We give you all the glory. We go in the power of God and come back with great testimonies. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Let's share the grace of God and fellowship. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now forevermore. Amen. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Evangelism, glory, you are blessed in Jesus' name. Please let's move out quickly to my left. The Lord bless you in Jesus' name.